Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our famous guest is Scott Belsky, Chief Product Officer at Adobe, and previously the founder of Behance. We're going to talk about creative careers. This episode is brought to you by Hotjar. This tool lets you see how people truly experience your site or product and gives you users a voice. Let real users show and tell you which changes your team should make to improve user experience. Eliminate the guesswork. Use Hotjar to understand how users experience your site. Try Hotjar business free for three months at hotjar.com slash uibreakfast. Hey, Scott. Hello, Jane. Thanks for having me. I'm incredibly excited. And, you know, eight years ago, I could never believe that this is going to be happening. But here we go. Um, You're on the show. And we have 30 minutes to ask you everything we can about, you know, making Korean design. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, it's uh, one of my favorite topics and happy to take it in any direction of interest to you. Amazing. For those who don't know, could you give us a brief overview of what your life has looked like before today, and especially what happened after Behance was acquired by Adobe over the last few years. Sure, sure, sure. Well, I'm I'm from a, a small town outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and I have always been a lover of design and making things, crafting things. I was using Photoshop at the age of 13, and on my parents' kitchen table, I remember kind of that first moment of wonder being like, wow, this is cool. And wow, I have a lot to learn here. I started a a company called Behance back in 2006. And the mission of the company was to help organize the creative world. I felt like life was made interesting by people who had this gift of, you know, expressing themselves visually. And yet some of these people were some of the most disorganized people I knew. And I figured, wow, if they could only get attribution for the work that they have done, if they could only be more proactive in managing their own careers, they would be more successful, but also the world would be better off because you'd have better creative talent matched with the best opportunities. And so that was the origin story of Behance, which was a bootstrapped business for five years and then venture-backed for two years, almost two years. And then we were acquired by Adobe in 2012. And I came into the company excited about learning about you know, other parts of the, you know, creative world and tools that empower creative people. And Adobe, you know, had this great legacy of of products like Photoshop, Illustrator, Premiere Pro, etc. And also had the responsibility of innovating to feed the future of creative people. And that meant, you know, new products like Adobe XD, it meant new mediums like 3D and immersive, it meant mobile, it meant web, you know, and so I, I got very excited about the idea of you know, building off of what Adobe had built before, you know, into the into the next generation. And so that's been my career since, you know, aside from a, a slight uh, stint away, you know, I stayed at Adobe for three years, left for a year, and then I've come back in this new role of chief product officer. And now I'm in my fourth year in that role. So what does your work look like today on a daily basis? Yeah. Well, right now in my organization includes both design product and engineering. And I am trying to make us a more design-driven company. And it sounds 
ironic that, you know, Adobe is the company that makes products for creative people. And, you know, of course, design should be at the center of everything that we do. And it isn't the case in some teams, and it's less the case in other teams. And so, you know, I'm, I'm definitely on a, on a mission to make sure we have some of the best designers in the world that are making predominantly for themselves, first and foremost, you know, and, and, and that we really are not thinking about um, just where the customer's needs are today, but where they're going. I, I think that the future of, of creativity is far more collaborative than the past. You know, in, in the past, I feel like it's been a very solo kind of isolated experience. You know, you don't want to have anyone in your Photoshop file. <laughs> and now I think it's all about who am I working with? And I want to be able to see what they're doing in real time. I want to jump into the same document, that sort of thing. So I think collaboration is a big part of the future. And then I also want to make these products more accessible to more people. You know, you shouldn't have to go to design school in order to express yourself. And I, I believe there's a a new genre of creativity. I call it content-first creation, where you're starting to build from components. You're starting to leverage the stuff your design team did so that you can, you know, do other things really much more quickly. And uh, and so I think there's a you know an opportunity to engage a lot more people in the process of creativity. We actually had one of your colleagues here four years ago, and we talked about the future of UX with Koi Vin. And clearly the future has arrived and we can talk about <laughs> design again with you today. I'm curious, uh, before we dive into the main topic, uh, which is the careers part, what were your key takeaways from your, as a founder of Behance, by the time you got acquired? And uh, you've written a few books and one of them was about that. So could you tell us more about your experience and those books so that people who haven't read them can find them and do it today? Sure. Well, first of all, I'm glad you had Koi. I mean, he's really one of the best designers that I've ever worked with. And he is also someone who just, you know, cares so much about what designers are able to do and, and, and how to bring them into the future. And reflecting on the Behance journey, it was hard. It was really, there were a lot of moments where I wasn't sure this was going to work. There were a lot of moments where I felt like the most important thing I did was simply keep the team together long enough to figure it out. You know, I, having gone through a journey like that, people say, oh, you know, you started a company f- called Behance and then you, you know, you did it for seven years and then it was acquired by Adobe and now the team's happy working at Adobe. You know, it's, and you make it, everyone can put a bow on the story so quickly, but in fact, you know, it was really messy. And so the book, you know, The Messy Middle is really a book about uh, many entrepreneurs and creatives journeys through the middle and how they endured the lows, the really tough parts, how they optimized everything that actually worked in order to build something successful, and how they navigated the final mile, you know, the sort of the end of something. And how do you, you know, then go on to something new, you know, and, and what do you learn? So so that was um that's the synopsis of of, of the messy middle. And uh, you know, and I think it's very relevant for me as a leader today. I, I learned a lot about uh, a lot about how to how to manage an organization, you know, how to keep us all accountable, you know, to each other, how to build a product that, you know, despite all the ups and downs that you go through in doing so. There is another book that you wrote uh, called Making Ideas Happen, which was iconic. And uh, comparing the timelines, it was originally published in 2010. And that was two years 
before you exit. So yeah. what was, looking back at this, if you can disclose now, what was the strategy behind uh, writing that book and how did it go? And I also recall you had an amazing line of physical products that you can't yes. find anymore. So tell us about that. Yeah. So, well, the physical products, which are actually, you know, they're still still out there done by a company called Ghostly. Um, they, you know, and they wanted to continue the the tradition of these paper products that were designed to help us be more productive as we're creative. So, you know, there's beautiful dot grid, you know, for sketching and, and outlining things, but then there's action steps. There's like a place where you capture things that start with verbs. And the idea there was actually the mission of Behance, which was to organize the creative world. And so I always like to say that we were a mission-centric, medium-agnostic company because we were very singularly focused on a mission, organize the creative world, but we were willing to do it through books, like Making Ideas Happen, which I can talk about in a second, through paper products, through a conference called 99U um, that went on for 10 years, and and of course, through Behance, the, the thing that we're most known for. And I, I actually think that that's a characteristic of many new businesses these days. And any of you that are listening and thinking about building a business to accomplish a mission, you should think about it in a medium agnostic way. Because these days, it's actually pretty easy to develop a product and have a Shopify website that sells it. And, you know, and then also have a virtual conference where people can just click on a link and join. And, you know, a lot of these capabilities are now possible for all of us. So let's touch again on the on the book and yes, why yes, it was yes. written and how it went. So Making Ideas Happen was a book about the most productive, creative people and teams on the planet. And my thought behind that book was that most creative people have so many ideas and they, they never make any of them really happen. Or they suffer from what I like to call idea to idea syndrome. <laughs> where you know you have an idea, you get really excited, and then you go th a few weeks into executing it, and then you realize that you are losing energy, it's not as exciting, it's really hard work, you don't see any end in sight. And so what do you do to escape that feeling? You just come up with a new idea, and then it repeats itself again and again and again. And so how do we as creative people defy that outcome of just coming up with many ideas but never actually pushing any one of them to complete fulfillment. That's what the book is about. And it's interesting because as product people and, uh, and founders, we still have the same thing. It's just within the same one business, but you get carried away with different marketing projects, different uh, product features and things like that. And it's so hard to follow through. So this problem is really timeless, in fact. No, it is. I think we all, you know, we all struggle from it. And, and I, uh, you know, what my takeaways personally from that book and the journey of interviewing all these people, you know, one was this notion of a bias towards action. You know, how do you have a culture in your team and also just in the way that you work that pushes you uncomfortably towards capturing and completing things that are actionable? I think another part for me was around the role of community and holding you accountable. You know, I went before this book from not sharing my ideas until they were really ready to be shared and always worrying about sharing them because I would worry people would steal them to having the complete opposite belief, you know, of sharing ideas liberally, getting them out there so people connect the dots for me, that people hold me accountable. And that to me became the difference between an idea happening and not, the role of community and holding me accountable. And then finally, leadership. You know, how do you lead a creative team through, you know, a very difficult journey? You know, a lot of those insights stuck with me as well. 
Now let's talk about design careers and the advice you can now give to young designers and seasoned designers from the top of your, you know, where you are. What would be the, the top principles that everyone should embrace when it comes to, you know, self-managing your career, taking control of that? Well, let's think about it. And, and I'll think about it in the context of the designers that I have worked with in my career and those that I've seen really succeed and also some that I've seen struggle. I mean, a big part of this has to do with your ability to incorporate feedback. You know, that's a, it's a really, everyone knows this and it's easy to say, but not a lot of designers want the feedback, like really actually want the negative constructive feedback. And when they hear it, they immediately discount the person who's giving it to them as opposed to being extremely curious about why someone saw it that way. When you're hearing feedback on design, you're hearing someone's experience of what you created. And as a designer, you are an experience creator. So perception is reality, right? What people are seeing is really what they saw. And if they were lost and if they were confused, you, you actually cannot debate that because that is their reality. Now, you can say they're one in a million and that everyone else would not feel that way, but that's actually easy to validate. Just ask more people, you know, and see. So I think there's some there's some aspect of very successful designers that becomes deeply curious about people's experience with what they created. And they don't take the feedback as criticism, but rather, rather as data of why, you know, why did someone get lost there? Or why would someone have not known what to do next, you know, in that, in that, in that moment? You know, I think also a big part of the successful designers that I've worked with is that they are, they're really good at presenting their work within the broader narrative of, of what's trying to be accomplished. They don't just, you know, you're not just building an interface because you were asked to do this, you know, make, make this page, but rather, you know, always presenting in the context. And, and that's actually one of the things that I felt strongly about when we were building Behance was that I wanted the projects in people's portfolios to tell a story of the, of the project, the solution, the problem, you know, that they were tackling. I felt like other sites where you would take a 400 by 400 pixel snapshot of a, of a drop shadow, for example. <laughs> Let's not name that, right. <laughs> um, no, or, or, you know, they, they show someone's capabilities of doing a drop shadow or a rounded corner or whatever, you know, you can make, but here's the fascinating thing is you can make, a designer can make anything look good, right? In a good designer can make anything look good, but What's really hard is to solve a problem in the context of a user's experience. You know, what, how does this piece, this iconic piece of interaction fit within the context of everything around it? And you can't cheat that in a true portfolio representation of the project. And because, uh, you, you, you know, it's, it's just all contextual. And which goes to another thing that I've, I'll try to verbalize to you that I've seen, you know, amongst great designers is they are always grounding themselves with the object model of whatever they're designing. And what does that mean to me? It means it's always clear, you know, how the customer got to that point. It's always clear to the customer what they're supposed to do when they're there. And it's always clear where they're supposed to go next or what they're supposed to do next. And so you can imagine sort of breadcrumbs, you know, at the top of a, an experience that walks you through the navigation and the intuition around it. Progressive disclosure, like, are you showing me everything at once or only pieces when I need to see them? What the defaults of every experience are. I mean, one of my absolute favorite sayings 
from my friend Dave Marin around product is that it's you know the devil's in the default, right? And whatever you give the customer first is oftentimes what they'll just hold on to indefinitely. Having those intuitions, you know, to me are crucial. So when it comes to a career and a designer navigating his or her career, I think a lot of it is, you know, a study of human behavior and an appreciation for psychology and considering themselves product leaders and designers, you know, not just designers, but product, you know, thinkers and then grounding ourselves with, you know, with that very, you know, that, that human experience of the experiences we're crafting. Uh, um, you know, I just think those are just a few thoughts around the designers that I admire most. Very few designers I know who are successful just stuck to designing. They veered away, did their own products. And for me personally, everything I learned, the, the majority of it was from writing, from from doing my own products and getting business experience and then trying to extrapolate that. And as I imagine the design role today, role of the designer, the role of design in the success of a particular product, this is just our humble place in this universe. Like I had no idea about that uh, years ago. And only a handful of designers I know have returned from the business back to just designing. And uh, we had Brian Gardner here, but yeah, he's a founder these days. We had uh, Rafal Tamal. He's amazing. And he actually like scaled his business back to just him designing, but very rare occasions. Other people just went into full-time founder roles. What's your take? Like, how do you find your balance between, you know, fulfilling your creative ambition versus fulfilling your business ambition? That's a good question. For me, design has always been the superpower for my career. And the designers that I've worked with, to me, are like the cheat code for being a great leader. Because I believe that a prototype is worth 100 meetings. It's amazing. You can sit around a table at a big company like Adobe, and you can try to talk about why something should change or what the actual product experience should be. And people just react to it from whatever they're seeing in their heads. And it's just this very convoluted conversation that can take many more meetings than it should. But then if you just put a prototype and walk people through an end-to-end journey, it's hard to argue with. So in some ways, design is like the hot knife through the butter of bureaucracy. It just gets everyone aligned in an instant, like magic. And you know, and I, I just love that so much that... You know, I find the more deep I get into my career as a business leader, the more I'm holding on to and advocating for the role of design, because it's what frankly differentiates me in my own career as a, as a business leader is, is valuing design and in structuring an organization or a product team to tap the full power of design. So What's tricky, though, I think, for for designers emerging in their career is they have to oftentimes educate their leaders of their company to how to best use them. You know, you kind of have to that whole proverbial seat at the table thing, which sounds so cliche. But in fact, what it means is it's educating. It's showing the power of design and then making sure that, that the, the organization is leveraging the power of design appropriately, which oftentimes it doesn't. If you were a young designer starting out, like your first day at job, how would you behave yourself? What's the advice you would give to such a person? Well, I think on day one, I would try to make sure my colleagues are 
feeling, you know, a sense of ownership in the design outcomes, right? That they, I mean, the most amazing work that we all do in a team, you can't even trace who did it. It's communally owned. It's everyone feels like their DNA is in it. And then they all act like stewards of this vision. Unfortunately, in reality, most work, you know, is just done by one person and the other person just sees it in a meeting and then they suddenly react because they don't, they think it's foreign. They don't feel familiar with it and whatever else. And so to the extent that on day one, a designer and a team can make everyone feel like it's an inclusive process. I think a lot of the new collaborative design tools are really succeeding because of that idea of inviting everyone in to a design document and letting everyone sort of see it happen and have some input to the point where they feel like they're an owner of it. And so everyone in the, everyone united on a team, you know, is, is pushing in a vision forward. I also think a lot of, you know, my, my approach, at least when I join a team is just be in learning mode, right? I always, the, that first 90 day concept of what do you want to achieve in the first 90 days on a team? You want to have people understand how you can add value. You want to learn from others what their roles are. You want to gain influence without authority, right? By being helpful and by helping solve problems. I think those are obviously also good tips. I think uh, you answered the question for like a somewhat, somewhat seen, like, I mean, middle or senior designer joining a new job. But mm-hmm. what about people who have never, you know, been in a design role before? Hmm. It's funny, you know, a lot of, my friends who are successful designers on teams today either didn't go to design school or say that that had a very minimal impact on their success as a designer. And Have they're explaining, and, I, and I didn't, <laughs> their explanation for that is that it was all just learning through apprenticeship model, you know, just really sitting next to somebody and watching them and playing with their files and doing things. And, and I mean, that, I think that's the old school, but best way to develop as a designer, right. Is to, is to pair yourself with people that are better than you, that you admire, and then learn the trade while developing your own style and your own plan of a, approach. I recall my, my first day on the job in 2004, I was still in like 11th grade it was a summer job and I, I knew how to use Photoshop, but they introduced me to vector editor and the senior designer showed me how to, you know, nudge points by 10 pixels by holding shift click. And you were like, whoa. <laughs> and I was like, why? And then I kind of got the grasp of it. And then <laughs> it was so interesting how even basic concepts you still, somebody can explain to you and that can be helpful to person. It's really many years you know, ago. <laughs> it's funny that we started this experiment in Adobe a few years ago of live streaming. And so we would have a lot of our, you know, of our customers be able to live stream their work. And then I remember the team reporting back to me the the statistics. And they told me that the average watch time of live streaming was 66 minutes. And I said, that can't be true. Like there must be an error or a bug in the analytics. Like that just doesn't feel right to me. But in fact, what we found were that people, when they were working during the day at their jobs, had live streaming of people in you know, one of our products on the side, and they were just watching these amazing creatives like do their work and as a way, to your point, of learning. 
the little tricks. And so as a result of this, we've, we've doubled down. We now allow customers all around the world through our products to live stream and build followerships of people. And we've also made it so you can track which tool they're using at which time so that, I mean, that is the way people learn. Like, isn't that so much better than reading some manual or going to some help website, just like watching a great creator, like in the product and how they use it. I, I couldn't agree more. There's uh, one designer in our ecosystem, Jared Drysdale. He he does some design courses, and one of his things is that he actually like the part of his course is not the talking head video, hmm. but uh, actually a very well edited version of him doing the work. And I think that's pretty fascinating because it's hard. Yeah. Like it's this content is hard, <laughs> and it's uh, you need to be humble to share it. It is hard, and you know I think also what people are starting to do now is share the assets that they use with others as a way to get, you know, people to me, that's like that content first creativity point I was making earlier. You know, the idea of starting from something as opposed to starting from nothing, nothing is a very empowering thing, you know, as you're learning. So going back to those, the product question, do you think designers should have side projects? Do you think that impacts their career or is it best to focus on like what you do best? And that is like the specific niche of design and nothing more? Well, I guess I'll answer the question in a roundabout way by just saying that I think that happiness, which is what we all should be ultimately aspiring for, is the result of feeling fully utilized. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that many of us can feel fully utilized in one particular job function uh, or one particular project. Uh -huh. That's pretty fascinating to think about. And so when you think about happiness and then you boil it down to both professional and personal utilization, you know, how do we feel utilized personally? Is it through things with loved ones or family or friends or other personal challenges we put ourselves through? And professionally, you know, what makes us feel fully utilized? You know, for me, I've had to remain engaged with founders and as an investor, despite my full-time job, because that's part of what makes me feel utilized is helping other entrepreneurs in their journey. I just, I love that. And helping, uh, especially designer founders, you know, build an enterprise and, and leverage their, their design sensibility as an advantage, you know, in, in a market. That's fascinating to me. And, you know, and then professionally, of course, there's a lot of things that I'm doing in my job that are making me feel fully utilized, which is why I'm here. And I think that, so to answer your question, it's really about what makes people feel fully utilized. And, and I think typically side projects of, of certain kinds, you know, are a key part of that. A few years ago, I wrote down a, uh, a guide, how to get started in your UI UX career, because I've, I've been getting a lot of inbound email asking for advice. So I decided to just put it in one post. And one of my favorite parts is, I think if you want to get started in UI UX, you should start by niching down even more. Like picking hmm. your like an industry for yourself. Let's say you're just designing for iOS, or if mm -hmm. you're just designing B two B web apps, as I've been for the last many years. Mm -hmm. But uh, but there's so many other industries. So what's your advice about like how to position yourself on this amazing spectrum of uh, different design jobs that available yeah. today? Well, having gone through the years of helping designers build their own portfolios and helping entrepreneurs and others hire designers for particular projects. You know, everyone everyone on the hiring side is a little lazy. You know, it's it's hard to be imaginative about someone's potential as a designer. You want to see something that is somewhat indicative of what you're trying to build. You're trying to 
hire someone who solved a similar problem. And so to me, building out a portfolio that's representative of your strengths and your areas of interest is just a great signal towards potential projects of the future, you know, collaborators, that sort of thing. You know, I, I see um, a lot of experimental works that people share in their portfolio that oftentimes designers might be hesitant to share because they're not official companies or official clients. But I think those are great examples of what someone's interests are and, you know, where their skills are. And, and so I, I think the, the question we should be asking ourselves as we construct a portfolio that represents our capabilities is what are the types of problems we like to solve? And if our customers or clients, you know, the stuff we're putting in our portfolio naturally represents that, great. And if not, we should just make up something and, and, and design it, you know, and put it up there as an exploratory work. Yeah, actually, the question I asked you about the first day on job while you were answering, I was thinking, is there really such a situation that a designer would be hired without having design work? Probably the first steps would always be somewhere in a sandbox, right? Yeah, I think that it's a, it's sort of a chicken and egg problem, right? Um, I mean, you're going to hire a designer because of what they've done. In the, in the notion of faking it until you make it, sometimes the things you've done at first are exploratory things you've done for yourself. Uh, maybe you're hired based on that before you have real client work to show. And I also think for your point about you know starting as a designer on a job, it actually probably is a great idea to focus on solving a specific problem really, really well right out of the gate to show how you are as a designer, but also a design thinker and, a, and, a, and someone who can take a business problem and, and solve it. The designers that you know, always exceed expectations, you know, those are folks who take a problem that they're given, or they're, given, they're actually taking a task that they're given, and they're returning something that is even greater than what was requested of them. You know, they reinterpreted the task as a problem that was not being articulated to them well, and then they you know, came back with a solution that exceeded the expectations. I think that's always a great, great thing to try to do out of the gate. I think a lot of our listeners today, they're uh, waiting for advice on how to advance yourself on the career ladder. Like, let's say you start as a junior, and then what do you do to get a better better pay, better uh, position title, and better better job next time? How can you take control of that? Or do, do you just do your great work and uh, wait for it to happen, which probably is not that easy? Well, then let me answer with a, you know, a controversial answer. Because in the creative world, and especially in the design world within a design team, the culture, there's often, you know, self-promotion is frowned upon, you know, self-marketing, you know, sort of like, just do your work. Uh, don't, don't worry about, you know, taking credit or, or promoting, etc. But I think there's a fine line. I think we all have to tell the story of the work we've done and why we did it the way we did it. It's amazing to me how few designers apply a narrative to the work that they've done and share it with their colleagues and with, you know, hopefully if it's allowed publicly. By doing so, you're not only serving the design world by explaining what was done and why, but you're also helping people understand your process and how good you are. I mean, that's just, just it's like that's that's the form of self-marketing we should all be doing is that when we contribute to the design of a product or service, we should post that proverbial blog post. And you should basically take the screenshots of the before and the after, some, some screens of kind of the process in between and the decisions that you made based on certain pieces of feedback or certain realizations, and then tell the story, post it, 
And if you can't post it publicly, make it a PDF and circulate it internally, privately to your team. But that's the flex as a future design leader, because then suddenly everyone respects, understands the process, and then they have more trust in you leading that process going forward. Of all people in the world, the founder of Behance should know that presenting something like that is like one third of the work. You know, seriously, many hours of labor. That's why people don't do that. But think about it. Like, how can we not be investing that time in our own careers? You know, and maybe that's the dirty little secret is that the very successful designers out there invest a sufficient. I mean, look at Stefan Sagmeister or you know, people like that who who are always doing personal works that are more of a statement of their brand for potential clients than their client work. So let's all commit that it's not selfish to spend a third of your time on projects that you think best emphasize your strengths, tell the story of how you work, help share your process, because this is how you will hire a team to work with you. This is how you will attract better clients. This is how you will develop more influence internally within your organization to actually make sure that design has a greater impact on the outcome. So it is actually not all self-serving. You know, it ultimately serves the purpose of design, but it does take time. And it is a, you know, it, it, it at first will feel like you're doing something for yourself, which may not feel comfortable. So we're wrapping up today's episode. There is still one more question. And I think a big part of uh, making yourself a better designer is watching as much of other people's work as you can, exploring, browsing, etc. But first, it takes time. Second, it can be pretty depressing to watch other people like ship amazing work, well presented. So how do you, any advice and tips in that direction, like how to make that your routine? Because like, I don't do this these days, but I miss it. Because I usually uh, remember myself doing that, like in the middle of projects as part of research, but maybe it can be a more you know, positive routine that's not always depressing or <laughs> mandatory. <laughs> yeah, maybe it, I think it can be accomplished in a couple of ways. You know, one is being the mentor. Ironically, you learn a lot being a mentor to somebody else. That's an and interesting so, angle we are taking there. <laughs> no, you do. I mean, so it's one thing. I mean, we're saying how do we keep our aperture open and keep observing others and keep learning from others? As we all know, it's the next generation that sometimes adopts new tools before the previous generation, right? It's the next generation that finds new techniques. And so, you know, I, one of my cardinal uh, beliefs in life is that the only way to be an expert is to remain a student. Mm -hmm. So let's make sure we continue to do that. And yeah, and I also think that pushing our boundaries, I mean, the the risk that a lot of us have once we're in an industry for too many years is that we just start to believe we know it all and, and we don't have the patience to learn new new things. And that's 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 the beginning of the end right there. And as, as we grow, we also are painfully aware of the things we don't do well. And sometimes we're just lazy to to make that final bits of work that we know hurt because we can't like it's not our forte. But it really is beneficial to to take that final step in each project and finalize those things. I agree. And whether, you know, what, what is the reason that we don't, um, sometimes that's the final mile, right. That we're talking about. And I think there's a lot of psychological barrier type action happening oftentimes at the end of a project that in some weird way, subconsciously prevents us from pushing it, you know, that, you know, getting it out there, even getting it on our portfolio. I mean, think about the psychological barriers to saying I did this and I'm going to present it. 
so many folks say, oh, I'm not going to, I'm not ready. Or, I don't have the time or whatever, which is crazy because it's the only unlock for your opportunity as a designer is to get attribution for the work. So of course you have to do that. And if you're not doing it, there's a subconscious psychological fascinating reason that we should all be curious about as to why we are not taking that final step. What's your final, you know, one or two pieces of advice for people trying to move it forward in their design career? Well, I guess two things that I would then leave folks with. One is that great opportunities uh, don't have great opportunity in the subject line. And I, I, I do believe that you know, a lot of the best designers I know are always sort of trading up in terms of roles and they want to work at the hot startup. They want to work at the, you know, whatever seems to have a ton of heat. And then they get hired by a huge team and they get relegated to some small role and they may learn a lot, but they didn't really singularly make something happen as a result of that move. And so it's frustrating that we always look for clear, clear opportunities that are great. When of, of course, if it was great, it would already be taken, right? I mean, it's uh, really like it, it, the great opportunities are ones that don't immediately, obviously seem like the hottest job to have at the moment. It's the things that you make great, right? So something that you, it's either a team you have conviction in and you're like, I'm going to join that team and make this team great by being their designer or a product vision, you know, a mission that you think is important, even though others don't realize yet. So don't always look for the obvious great opportunity. Challenge yourself to look for the opportunity that you uniquely identify as great, I guess, is my, is my point there. And then the second thing would just be how many people I met over the years when I would ask them about a great career moment, an inflection for them in their career, who would tell me that it was at a moment where they learned to gain confidence from being doubted. I remember meeting a, a gentleman many years ago when I was actually writing Making Ideas Happen. So was, I was writing probably 2007, 2008. And he had taken a role in a big publishing conglomerate, leading the digital book team. And people said to him, digital books, like that's never going to be a thing. I mean, that's maybe a little thing, but why would you throw away your career by joining this fledgling little digital team? You, you're on the fast track towards a traditional you know, leader of a publishing job. And he said that it was when people started to really doubt him enough where he started to realize, wait a second, like I'm really onto something, which goes to say that if everyone says you're crazy, you're either crazy or you're really onto something. And that should be a very positive signal for you. So I do think that we should all be looking towards certain career decisions or certain moments where we're getting doubt, but as a result of that doubt, we suddenly feel like we're ahead of the curve on something and that we remember, right, that nothing extraordinary is ever achieved through ordinary means. We should be looking for that. Amazing advice. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom today. Scott, that's amazing. Where can people find more of your work online and not just at Adobe, but on the personal side? Sure. Oh, I'm easy to find. So I'm just at Scott Belsky on Twitter, Scott, B-E-L-S-K-Y on Twitter and, and scottbelsky.com if anyone wants to reach out or if I can be helpful. Amazing. Thanks so much and have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you.